It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Joined on this episode by, I think it's fair to say, a lobby legend, John Pina, former newspaper hack turned BBC reporter for a long time presenter and for the past five years deputy political editor as well. Now, though, uh, he's a colleague. Um, when Times Radio launches uh, later this summer, uh, the radio station uh, spinning off uh, from the Times, I'm presenting the mid-morning politics show and John will be at the other end of the day presenting Drive and he joins me now. Hello, John. Hi, Matt. Thanks for that introduction. That's incredibly nice. So the last time I saw you in person was the last time I saw anyone in person in London. It was March the 16th. The sun was shining. We had our photos taken. We had a nice cup of coffee and then we went home and we've been at home ever since. How's the, yeah. lo- how's the lockdown been for you? Well, I mean, I suppose it's been for me like it's been for, for a lot of people. I mean, apart from the context, of course, being awful. And with, you know, a lot more and a lot more awfulness to come. Of course, we're all constantly more than aware of that. My own daily existence is I know, surprisingly, oddly idyllic. You know, I'm, I'm here with the family. My younger daughter's both at home with us. We're all getting on most of the time, except when we're, we're not getting on. Um, <laughs> home-cooked, home-cooked meals every night, drinking wine. It's a pretty familiar, familiar story. It must feel like this to be... The idle rich. It's just, you know, waking up in the morning with no idea what to do, how to how to please yourself without the inconvenience of having to work for it. Um, of course, you know, as I say, the context is, is everything and the context is absolutely, absolutely awful. And behind that, there's a, you know, I simply cannot, just like you, Matt, I cannot wait to get started with the, the new project. Well, before we, we come on to all of that, let, let's talk about you for a little bit, because people may not know uh, your full background, because although you're probably best known uh, for being on the BBC, you started out like all good people as a local newspaper hack. Yeah, I, I did. I did. Um, so back then, and we're talking what, very early, um, end of the 70s, early early 80s, I was a, a, a trainee, indentured trainee on the South London Press which is where, as you say, back in the day, where a lot of people started in local papers when there still were local local papers and doing the round of the courts and the councils and the police calls and all that, all that sort of stuff. Um, and occasionally in the sports room, um, doing, among other things, a column on angling, even though I've never never picked up a, a fishing rod in my entire life. But that's, that's a kind of a, I don't know, a good um, analogy for the business of journalism, I guess. And, and then you, at what point then did you join the BBC? Well, I mean, via a spell at the Press Association News Agency and then um, 
at the independent newspaper. I joined the independent newspaper when the Indy launched uh, back in in eighty six, nineteen eighty six, which is one of the you know starting at a new newspaper at its launch before launch. I was there before the furniture went into the building. That was one of the great journalistic experiences of my entire life, and has got a, an echo of what we're doing now. To be at the beginning of a of a new radio station at the Times Radio, it's got an echo of all of that. And in between the Indy, where I covered politics, I wrote occasional sketches and diaries like you. Um, I went on and joined the BBC and with the idea, Matt, of being there for two years. And that was, what, <laughs> nearly nearly 30 years ago. It's interesting. So you, so you did local paper, PA, Indy, uh, and then went into broadcast. I mean, it's basically what I I did exactly the same thing. I was on a local paper, joined the Press Association, with a bit of moving around in between, ended up at the Independent on Sunday. Uh, yeah, and now we're, we're, we're finally united at the at Times Radio. To talk are, about- the strange thing is, when I, when I went over to the BBC from, from the Indy, as I say, with the intention of being there for a couple of years and then going back to newspapers, I thought then, before I was approached and asked, do I want to do this thing? I thought, no, of course I don't. Why would I want to be a broadcaster? These are people who are only interested in the sound of their own voice or preening and, <laughs> and, and posing on TV screens. And of course, that's absolutely true. But then I went and, and became one of them, or one of the, one of the most preeners and, and, and posy of, of all of them and became completely and utterly addicted and still there 28 years at the BBC. And now I'm carrying on where I'm carrying on with you. And in what the, in in sort of in all that time, obviously, when you were working in uh, the independent on papers, you know, o- online wasn't a thing. You know, the BBC went from just having the sort of the bulletins at key points of the day to the rolling news and all that. How how much did your job change in that time? Yeah, enormously, as as you say. When I joined the BBC, it was purely about the uh, the main TV bulletins, one then six and 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 nine, which later on became the ten, and then there was radio. Which of course was mostly radio, radio four. There was no such thing uh, as online, online BBC, and everything morphed from there. Along came Radio Five with a, a much wider range of broadcasting, style of broadcasting, different and and wider and wider reach for the BBC. And then of course online journalism. And when when BBC Online came along, you know a lot of us thought, what is this inconvenience, this newfangled thing? Do we really need to bother with all of that? And now it's it's about the only thing that matters in in the media. When you're appearing, particularly on TV, so people see you, uh, but also on the radio, obviously one of the other changes online is social media. And, and instead of sort of it being a one-way conversation, if you like, you write something in the paper, you broadcast something on, on the TV, and that's the end of it. You now get instant reaction and, let's be honest, mostly criticism on yeah. social media. Does that start to affect how you do the job? I suppose it does, whether you want it to or not. There, there will be an unconscious effect at the very least in seeing the instant feedback weighted as it often is towards violent criticism from either end of the of the of the spectrum i still think we are in a, on a learning curve when it comes to dealing with and understanding what's happening on on social media it is an echo chamber of of people preaching to the converted you know on all sides of the of the equation and it's not an accurate reflection i think wildly inaccurate a lot of the time of what people, you know, in as far as one can generalise about people, are really, really thinking. When you look at the opinion polls, you know, and compare them to the weight of the argument, especially the argument on political Twitter, there's an enormous divergence, isn't there? When you look at, let's take the Labour leadership, for example, if you go by the noise on social media, you'd have thought that Kirstama had a real fight on his hands. He, he looked as if he was winning it from the beginning, but who thought he was going to win it in the convincing way that he did when you look at social media? As it, as it was, he walked away with it. The kind of impression you get of the weight of opinion in the Labour Party, just to take that example, it's so different to what you would take on, on social media. So I think you need to, if you're a journalist and trying to do what we do, 
You read this stuff, you do follow it, but you need to screen it out and sieve it for what it what it actually actually means and not be too influenced at all by the barrage of criticism you get and you will get all the time, Matt, from left and right um, on, on, on platforms like, like Twitter because it's not what most of the audience are necessarily thinking. And I think the same is true on the the flip side of the 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 Twitter sphere's view of Boris Johnson. Yeah, uh, what an appalling man he is. He's handling. He's done nothing but make mistakes on coronavirus. And then you look at the opinion polls, and he's in positive territory, like most prime ministers could never. In the majority of people still think he's handling it well. Possibly still willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And actually, on the lockdown, while the, even to be honest, some of the papers have been calling for the lockdown to be eased. Yeah. Um, actually, the problem the government has got, if you look at the polling, is that people are very happy to stay at home in the lockdown if they think it's going to keep them safe. And actually, persuading people out of their homes is more problematic than, than the opposite. Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect illustration. If you look at the polls now, as you say, the government's ratings, approval ratings for its handling of the of the of the virus crisis, have sunk. They've gone down a few points since the the earliest days of this crisis, which were only a, a few weeks ago. But still, they are pretty good. They are you know getting on for half of the population think the government's handling it you know okay. But then you look again at other polls, which show that people think the government's handled PPE protection equipment badly and testing badly, and that is despite the fact they've got a much higher rating for overall for the handling of the crisis, which says, I guess, that an awful lot of people may not think the government's done very well or well in many cases, but they are willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. They accept that they're doing a very, very tough job in very, very difficult circumstances. And with that will go missteps and and errors. And of course, there's going to come a time that, you know, at some point, no doubt the government will delay this moment for as long as possible when there'll be an inquiry, when there'll be a proper inquest into all of this. And I've no doubt the government will get a, a, something of a pasting from that inquiry on a delay in getting into the lockdown compared to other countries in Europe, for example, and especially in the handling of, of PPE. But look at those polls, look at public opinion, and maybe bear in mind when you do what we do at a time like this, that yeah, of course, of course, it's right to hold the government strongly to account every single day. But equally, maybe sometimes a little bit of a more measured approach, a more measured analysis, and something less accusatory some of the time would be more appropriate, more what people hope and wish to hear. And I suppose the difference is when people are forming a judgment on what the government's done, it's whether you you think there was sort of bad intent, you know, that they they you know they willingly took decisions that meant more people were going to die, or in the midst of you know partial information and mixed evidence, they made a judgment which history will conclude may have been the wrong one and that's a very different uh that's a very different thing i think and at the moment at least the polls look like the public are willing to say well you, you know i wouldn't know how to do with that job any better you know uh, but as time goes on and do you also think that maybe the last week or so there's been a sort of creeping back of politics is normal and not you know Keir, not just Keir Starmer but Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland diverging from Boris Johnson you know basically having a row about a logo but but bringing politics back into it and actually that might start to 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 dampen down the enthusiasm for the government yes I think that's I think that's right on, on all of those all of those counts as far as the first point that you made about you know judgments with the benefit of hindsight of course they are always very very easy to make if you go by what you read on look sections of social media, you can't ju- you can't generalize even about social media. But if you go by what you read on social media, 
many of the mistakes, and there have been mistakes, some big mistakes, have been motivated by malice. As if, and it, this, this was explicitly stated by someone in the social media sphere, that there was a deliberate attempt to kill off the old, you know, to, to ease the burden on the, on the state and other such, you know, ludicrously, insanely uh, uh, conspiracy-driven ideas as all of that. Whereas just common sense, you know, to use what is now a fashionable expression again, common sense <laughs> su suggests, suggests that people like the health secretary, that whatever else they're doing, whatever they're getting right or wrong, they want to do the best they can. They want to you know, give as much protection as they're able to, to people in the, in the face of this, of this crisis. At the same time, look, we're now revisiting all sorts of judgments, aren't we? So, so now, not only is, is it now argued that, that austerity, where it comes to health spending, was a mistake, yeah, it's, it's, you know, we're now looking at a place where inevitably the state is going to have a much bigger role in the way that our country is run in the future, during and after this, this crisis. So an awful lot of political orthodoxy is going to be turned absolutely upside down, not just in the future, but in retrospectively, looking back at the way things have been done over the last 10 years. Do you think there comes a point, it, it may be this this moment has passed and actually maybe it's something that Boris Johnson should have done on Sunday night when we went from sort of phase one to phase two. Is there a point where in the middle of the crisis that it is possible for the government or the prime minister to sort of fess up a bit, admit to some mistakes and, and you know, promise to learn from them? Do you think they'd get credit for that rather than sort of still trying to pretend that everything they did at every moment was was right? Yeah. They, they would get a lot of credit for that, but it would also come at a, at a pretty heavy cost. I mean, I'm certainly one of those who've been arguing for, not just now, but for many years, that it would be great to see a more adult tone in political discourse where you saw government ministers being willing on occasion to accept that a mistake was made, that they might have handled this or that situation better than they, they actually did. And we call that adult conversation. It's also true, Matt, isn't it, that any minister that actually does that is instantly locked up in a, in a pillory and, and out are handed the rotten eggs and the, and the tomatoes. So they are wary, beyond wary, of admitting to mistakes, even though it would, it would add a more adult tone to the conversation. But the the consequences of that adult uh, confession or admission would be anything but adult because, you know, a minister who, who, who behaves in that way, who admits to an error, is instantly, instantly punished for it. It would be great to get to a place where it would be possible for the likes of you and me to have a more grown-up conversation with a, with a politician on air. And I've no doubt that you and I are going to be trying to do that, you know. <laughs> um, and we'll see how far we, how far we get. It struck me actually. I was I wrote a, a big piece this week on uh, in Red Box on Keir Starmer and how he was doing. People getting very excited about the fact that you know basically he's just a bit better than well actually quite a lot better than Jeremy Corbyn. But one of the things that struck me on that sort of you know, admitting of mistakes was back I think it was uh, November there was a YouGov poll that asked people about U-turns. And actually, unsurprisingly, the public, who tend to be quite sensible on this, 41% uh, thought that a uh, U-turn is normally a good sign that the government is willing to listen. And, yes. and, and you know, and why would you carry on doing something that you view to be a bad idea? And actually, yeah. far, you know, far fewer people thought that U-turns are necessarily bad. So there is this sort of slight disconnect sometimes between how maybe the media might portray a, a, U, a humiliating U-turn. And actually, the public might think, well, if they were doing something and they realised it wasn't the right thing to do, doesn't it make sense to stop doing it? It's a constant disconnect between the way that, that the media and we in the political media view and discuss politics and the way that it's discussed by people people outside in the street. Now, that's not to say that we are always wrong and, and the public, and you really can't generalise about this, see it in a better, more enlightened enlightened way. But there is, there is a case, and forgive an obvious point, for maybe a better balance a lot of, a lot of the time. And the 
I don't know, the, the, the balance between between conversation and, and confrontation on on air, between honest grown up discussion and the and the bear pit of a of a, of a political interview. It, it, there's a way, constantly a way of going through that 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 going down that course in a way which is more fulfilling for for listeners and more useful for listeners. And you know, look, I'm not saying we at the station that we're about to be you know broadcasting on are some sort of enlightened paragon of, of virtue in all of this. So we're, and we're going we're to show how every, it's all been done wrong in the past and we're going to be doing it nothing nothing but perfectly. But there, there is a better way a lot of the time, speaking for myself and speaking, and I'm sure you feel the same way, we can agree on that. And we can agree that it's a good idea to strive for something which is a, a bit more satisfying, at least some of the time, a lot of the time, to people listening. And what about, because obviously there has been a lot of focus and Twitter criticism of uh, the media, and not least the press conferences and the way that, and to some extent, I think it's what happens when you people see what goes on in the sausage factory, that actually press conferences aren't, are they te- TV events or are they an opportunity to try and elicit some more information and some detail and some, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, TV people approach them slightly differently to to print people, print people to quite often and ask quite dull technical questions because they're basically trying to fill in a gap in their work was, you know, TV people want the clip for the news. What, what have you made, having done lots of these things in the past, what have you made of the, the press conferences this time around? I think I think some of what you say is true. I don't necessarily accept this this gulf of virtue between print journalists and broadcasting, by the way. And, and, you, and since you've now crossed crossed the the river, oh, that's true. You, that is true. You might, no you might want back. to shed some of that some of that sort of high minded print <laughs> way of looking at things. But, but, I, but I I agree they haven't often and feel at all been satisfying experiences these these briefings. And someone who's been a political journalist for you know since Margaret Thatcher was a, was a new prime minister, I do actually think that. The, that we political journalists have been leading the way on this story rather too too much. I would have wished to see from an early point the the science and medical journals yeah. take a much more prominent uh, prominent role, and equally the economics and business journals I think could have been seen more of and heard more of than we've seen in the past. Of course, they are there in the bulletins, they are there in the papers. You know, quite often on the inside pages of, of papers, by the way, but they are there, and I would have liked to see more more of that rather than quite to, to the extent that we have seen political journalists like me um, pulling apart shreds of medical data and and and, the, and discussing the process of the of the of, the, of handling the pandemic rather than what's actually happening in terms of you know the, 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 the medical scientific policy and the way that it's playing out in the in the country if you walk around my local park you will hear from a lot of people as you as you walk about on your your daily bit of exercise People with a sometimes with a, a can of beer in their hand, bandying the names of eminent epidemiologists, you know, and 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 and, and rival theories of virology, and not so much, you know, who which advisor in number ten Downing Street has had this role in that in that piece of the process. All of that is important. I'm absolutely not one of those who say let's not hold the government's feet to the fire, you know, to the extent that they that has been has been done. But equally, there's an appetite for something wider out there. And I would have liked to have seen that serve rather more in many cases than it, I think it has been. Yeah, well, I, I'd agree with you. I mean, in, the, in, no, in no way to do down my political colleagues, even the, who've come on the podcast, but Tom Whipple, the science editor of the 
of the times has been this sort of the go-to guru of all this. You know, he understands this stuff. He's been writing about the R rate long before any of us knew what the hell that was and can explain that far better than, yeah, you're right. In fact, the whole point of being a political journalist is you're not a specialist, really. You're, you sort of skim across everything and duck and dive a little bit. And actually, this is something where people who know what they're talking about is probably more useful. Yeah, and it's so much a part of the trade of political reporting to and interviewing to claim a scalp at any given moment to, as you say, as we were saying earlier on, to get a minister, the minister sitting in front of you to admit to some kind of error. That's a, a moment where you chalk one up on the on the board. And again, I'm not suggesting some revolution in the culture of journalism on or off air here, but there's more to it than that. And, and there's more to it, certainly, wherever you look in the media just now, day to day. But I'd like to see the balance in quite a lot of the time in, in a slightly different place. 1 size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. To what extent do you think coronavirus is going to change politics? Everyone has obviously been saying, uh, you know, politics, is, the world has changed forever and all that sort of thing. Do you think that is the case? Or do you think that um, actually what will happen is what quite a lot of people expect, is that we will rush to get back to, quotes, normality as soon as possible? I think we're going to be in a, a new normal and really quite soon, quite soon, Matt. And in some ways, politics in the very near future is going to be unlike anything we've seen at any time, in some ways similar to something we haven't seen for a very very long time. At the most basic level, I think the the balance between the the state and the private sector, the size and the role of the state, it's obviously changed now during this crisis beyond all possible recognition, but it's not going to go back to anything resembling what we used to think of as normal anytime soon. And so we're going to see, and the government will have to react to, a whole new set of demands in a very changed climate. There will be a demand which will have to be met for more effort to improve the health service, to spend more and provide more for the health service, which is going to cost more money, even beyond, well beyond anything that's been promised so far. I think there'll be a climate in the future where the country will ask for much more effort and many more, much more resources 
for social care. And I think the experience of having been, as it were, you know, in it all together, to, to the extent that that has been true, might make it easier for the government to come up with some difficult solutions by way of getting people to contribute more or by spending more from the public purse on social care. But a combination of those things in some way or another, I think that's going to be an absolute imperative. So another another change there. Boris Johnson, I think, was setting out to be a post-austerity prime minister even before this crisis uh, descended. He wouldn't even talk about austerity. Apparently, he likes to talk about the A word when he has to. But look, austerity is now a very, very long time ago, even though the country will move forward with a hugely increased national national debt. And it's a reasonable bet, Matt, that in the future, we're going to have to look on the problem of dealing with that debt in the same way that we looked as a country of dealing with the debts after World War II, which were not settled, by the way, until you know, comparatively very, very recently. We lived with that World War debt for decades, and we'll live with this debt for decades. And meanwhile, at Westminster, our old stamping ground, our old village, we're going to see a transformation there, there too. We're going to see the Labour Party under Keir Starmer, I think, gaining ground pretty rapidly. At the moment, they are way, way behind in the opinion polls. But just look at the way that Keir Starmer is, is gaining credibility for himself and for the Labour Party in the way that he's addressing this crisis. Not point scoring all the time, but scoring points nonetheless. That legal loyally-like way he has of dealing with Boris Johnson, I think that's going to pay pay dividends. He's been compared to John Smith, the fairly you know, short-lived Labour, Labour leader. John Smith was a lawyer and a much better debater, by the way, than Keir Starmer, I think, could ever be. But I think Keir Starmer's skills will stand him in enormously good stead when dealing with Boris Johnson. We've seen that at the moment when he doesn't have a cheering crowd behind him in the House of Commons. Boris Johnson is rather rather weaker, but I think the effect is going to continue. And Keir Starmer, I think, will make Labour much more of a credible proposition as a possible alternative government sooner rather than, than later. And they'll be having an argument, you know, starting pretty soon on the role of the state, tax and spending, which will be much more competitive than anything we've seen in British politics since, well, for a decade. And I suppose the, the thing is, it's it it less than six months ago when Boris Johnson won that Commons majority, all the talk then was, you know, people had lent their votes to the Conservatives, although it's a big majority and sort of, you know, there's got 80 more MPs than all the other parties put together. It, feel, it felt very fragile then. And, and you know, even without coronavirus coming along, he was going to have to do a hell of a lot to hang on to that level of support. Yeah. Um, never mind, you know, the extraordinary times are in now. Yeah, it used to be said of, of, of Tony Blair that his support across the country was very broad, but also very shallow. And I think you could say the same in some ways, of, of Boris Johnson's uh, support. Of course, that was a stupendous result of the last general election and taking seats like Bolsover and, and, and Blind Valley, absolutely unthinkable, not so very long ago. But I think immediately those in number 10 understood that, you know, you couldn't take those votes for granted. And that was why all the, the talk, you know, at that time and, and since has been about rebalancing, rebalancing politics, trying to, trying to cement, cement up the, the red wall in the north of the country and in the Midlands, those Labour seats that went to the to the Tory party. And that will not be be easy. It's, it's one thing to talk about rebalancing the, the economy so that, this, that London and the southeast gets a, a, a less of the, the cream and the northeast of the country and, and the harder up areas in the, the Midlands and the, and the north and so on get more. It's much harder to do it in practice. The, the scale of it is absolutely extraordinary, even before this, this crisis. It's been compared, I think, to 
the job of, of rebalancing the economy of Germany after the, the Berlin Wall came down. Absolutely huge by way, by way of a challenge. And, you know, just talking about it is one thing, delivering it is something else. And even though I think we can call Boris Johnson's ambition of doing this, of hanging on to those those areas in the in the north, rebalancing the economy, spreading opportunity, all of that sort of stuff, I guess, and, and, the, in the, and as a consequence, winning another another election. You can call that the Johnsonite idea. That's Johnsonism. You know, when you look at it closely, it is a hugely ambitious project without an awful lot of flesh on the bones. It is, it is, it is big. It is ambitious, but at the moment, it looks rather hollow. And critics of Boris Johnson would say, look, it's a bit like Boris Johnson himself in that regard. <laughs> Just before we wrap up, we should talk um, properly about uh, Times Radio. What is the what's the thing that you're hoping to do on Times Radio that you've not been able to do before? The job I'm doing is not quite what I've, I've, I've been doing until until now. Until now, I was, as you say, deputy political editor at the BBC. So, you know, um, appearing on the, the evening bulletins or the radio bulletins and uh, Today Programme and, and World One and all that sort of stuff. At, at intervals, and then doing my Sunday politics show, you know, as 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 well as all of that. Now I'm going to be doing a, a daily drive program show from four to seven Monday to to Thursday, which is a different order of, of mission altogether. Of course, you know, you've got you've got our Times audience, which hopefully we can grow. The, the, the idea is to make Times Radio the station of choice for as many people as possible, and that will no doubt take a certain amount of time. And our hope is to make Times Radio something which can compete with the best elsewhere, and there's a lot of very good stuff elsewhere, much sooner than it achieves any kind of stupendous breakthrough in the size of the of the audience. Because, you know, we've all got an idea of what we want to do. And what certainly what I want to do, and one of the reasons I've joined Times Radio is that I believe they, the Times Radio wants to do this too, is to have a grown-up radio station which is about civilised, intelligent, thoughtful discourse, where the, to use a phrase I used earlier on, where the confrontation is balanced with the conversation. But people think not just they wish they were part of the conversation that they're hearing, but feel as if they are part of that that conversation, that, that is telling people what they want to know or try to tell them what they want to know most at any given moment, which isn't purely about, about point scoring, which is about just telling the story day by day and sometimes the story behind the story and sometimes tomorrow's story today, but just in a way that leaves you satisfied, hopefully leaves audiences satisfied and leaves the likes of me satisfied sitting in the studio in front of the microphone. I genuinely can't wait to get started. I'm very excited. And, and for listeners of the podcast, I should point out that uh, the podcast will continue and will basically be a spin-off from uh, my show, which is Mid-Mornings, where um, we, you'll get basically the best of the show on the podcast. Uh, John, I can't wait to get started. I'm very uh, you know, frustrated that we're not all sitting in a big office with a flip chart brainstorming together and instead doing everything remotely. But um, yeah, we'll have, that, we'll have that team dinner with plenty of wine one day. I can, I'm yeah, sure. just like you, I'm absolutely aching, aching to get started. So yeah, can't wait for that. John Pinnock, thanks very much. Now, you'll be able to listen to Times Radio when it launches later this summer. It's going to be available on DAB, online, via an app and smart speaker. And you're going to get Stig Abel and Asma Mir at breakfast. I'm doing mid-mornings. John is doing drive time. Cathy Newman's doing a show. Michael Portillo's doing a show. And there'll be more names announced in the next few weeks. For now, make sure you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast by hitting subscribe wherever you get them from, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Acast or wherever. And I'm still doing the Red Box uh, morning email before I hand over to Esther Weber and Patrick Maguire, who is joining the Red Box team. Uh, you can sign up to morning email at 
thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, from me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. <laughs>